This is Psych Bates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Psych Debates. It's Dr. Monte Altahami and Dr. Jonathan Namayas. Hello. Your hosts for the show and your favorite psychiatry residents. We are joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Harold Koenig, um, a world-renowned psychiatrist. Um, the, his biography goes on and on and on, and his accolades and achievements can can have an old like their own episode. But he's the director of the Center for Spirituality, Theology, and Health, and an associate professor of medicine at Duke University. And we're so excited for this episode. He is like the specialist Very special. on spirituality and mental health and spirituality and health in general, and has literally written the textbooks on the topic. Um, at the crux of today's debate is another question that I think is very interesting. Should there be separation between church and psychiatry or spirituality and psychiatry? One might think the simple answer is, I don't know. Um, well, stick around for the debate. This house believes the psychiatric is political and you shall find the answer out for yourself. I'm excited for this one. This is a topic that is really close to my heart and something that I feel like there is so, so much benefit in our patients to be tapping into their religion. Um, not to not to sound biased from our coin toss that led me to be the one in, in uh, pro- proposing that religion is a good thing. Yeah. The way we improve the quality of debate and put the ego of combatants aside, guys, we mentioned before, is that we randomly assign positions. And today, Jonathan will be holding the proposition and I will be holding the opposition. Um, and so without further delay... The Psych Debate House calls on the motion for debate, and we begin the proposition speaker, who will be Jonathan. In the motion, this house believes that religion is an asset to mental health. The point of view I'm going to be taking is that there are benefits to religion and mental health. So I'd like to start with by sharing a story about a patient's interaction that I had where this really proved true for me. Um, Without giving away too much patient information, there was a patient I had that had uh, delusions of the devil controlling their body and had lived most of their life being very religious and and attributing many of the bad things in their life to be due to the devil, not in a delusional standpoint, but just in a way of just believing in a day-to-day life. And at the same time, going to church and being with the church community to show her love for God, which ended up being a huge strength for her. But in the hospital, she had this major, major depression, which was so major, actually these delusions of the devil creeped in. And so I asked her about this. I asked her about her, her past, and I asked her about her current beliefs. And, and we just explored that for a minute. And she said that, well, you know, I haven't really been praying recently. And, and I think that God would forgive me. And, and then, you know, drilling more into that, she said that she wanted to continue praying. And then we were able to sit there and we were able to pray together. And as we were praying, she started to just appear different. She started to appear less depressed and she wanted to continue. She wanted to come back on a daily basis and pray. And I, I think that this is a good example of just the benefits of religion, how 
it, it, there can be this strength that is arisen and, and that is ri- arising in our patients uh, when they have this religious background to tap into. And I think that there's also a strength that is noticed in the mainstream psychotherapy and psychiatry realm, uh, mindfulness-based interventions like um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based CBT. Those all originate from Buddhist teachings, a, a religious practice, uh, such as the, the Four Noble Truths uh, the and, and essentially uh, what has to be done in order for somebody to be happy and this has been adapted and brought into mainstream psychotherapy in the west and there's a huge huge evidence base that it's beneficial for all sorts of mental illness so i think that there are absolutely very positive things that religion has to bring to mental illness certainly religion can be an asset but in many circumstances it can serve as a hindrance to mental health care in a lot of countries across the world mental health is still viewed as a form of religious health or purity. That if you're blessed religiously and that the divine has smiled on you, that you should not have mental health issues. However, the flip side is true as well, that if you're suffering from mental illness, you're viewed as cursed and infected with evil and occult forces, which can in turn infect others as well. This can create a problem for mental health care and diagnosis and the delivery of interventions. And it's particularly true in countries where there's less room for tolerance and differing opinions when it comes to religious beliefs. And this is why the opposition believes that today, in global religion, can do more harm than good. This provides room for intervention that may be harmful to patients, and competing theories in which if one does not follow the accepted belief, they may be in violation of their religious code of conduct, and thus it hampers those who may be wanting to explore evidence-based treatment. Some examples of those are the beatings of patients in the effort to get their bodies to become uncomfortable vessels for the evil forces, as in in exorcism and similar practices. Moreover, the spiritual care providers are more prone to being uninformed, uneducated themselves. And this can create a problem in which one of those unqualified people are creating more problems and more harm to patients than good. The checks or balances that are there for mental health care providers, the academic ones, are not in place or as rigorously applied to religious providers. And particularly, there are no particular legal checks that are applied in a lot of countries. It can also further stigmatize mental illnesses by adding occult and evil motivations or meanings behind the illness, but also leading to the outcasting of those with mental health issues which can lead to a cascade effect in terms of diagnosis, treatment, research, understanding, and compassion, and most importantly, the course of the illness itself. It also can create a culture of ignorance around mental health hygiene, which certainly impacts religious components, but uh, certainly impacted by religious components, but also by social, psychological, and physiological components, which we should all take part in. Now, can religion serve as an asset? Sure. But in a lot of parts of the world today, it serves as a liability. We are excited for today's guest, Dr. Harold Koenig, director of the Center for Spirituality, Theology, and Health at Duke University, associate professor of medicine and professor of psychiatry and behavioral health at Duke University, He has literally written the major textbooks on spirituality and health in general and mental health in specific as well. He is a professor globally in universities spanning from the U.S. to Saudi Arabia to China. 
Dr. Koenig has over 500 scientific peer-reviewed academic publications, nearly 100 book chapters, and more than 50 books, and is the lead author on the Handbook of Religion and Health, the third edition that is coming out this year. So if you are going to look for someone to speak on this topic, he would be the expert to speak to. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Koenig. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And it's really, it's really is an exciting time and we're really happy to have you. And I wanted to start the show by asking you kind of a broad question. Um, and I think that is to kind of clarify and define what religion exactly is. And so what is religion to you? So that's, that's a, a bit of a controversial topic definitions, you know, what is religion and what is spirituality and and how are they different? How, how are they the same? So I define it as religious beliefs and practices related to the transcendent, the transcendent, whether that be God, whether that be uh, Allah, whether that be um, uh, the supreme God in Hinduism or ultimate truth and reality in Buddhism. Um, it, there is some connection with, with the transcendent. Um, and that may involve beliefs. It may involve public practices, such as attending synagogue or mosque or church. It might involve praying or meditating, reading religious scriptures, listening to religious music, uh, um, listening to uh, the recitation of the Quran or of the Bible or or whatever, but it religion is is a unique construct that can be measured, can be quantified, that has to do with the transcendent. That's the one unique aspect about it. If it doesn't have something to do with the transcendent, then we need to call it something else. Wow, that that that's that certainly is an interesting phrase. And there at the end as well about quantification and uh, kind of understanding a little bit what what are the values within religion. What do you think, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah. I'm. It, it makes me think. Uh, I, I I honestly I wonder in in thinking about practices related to the transcendent. Uh, I've I've considered to some degree. Um, atheism to be a religion in some ways and I, i'm curious because in that there is this belief that there there's no religion as i understand it or, or no being and so i'm i'm wondering if uh, from that standpoint do you do you consider that a religion yourself or do you kind of take the the stance of it's completely not religion i would would it has many aspects of religion it has you know it's connected with very strong beliefs um beliefs that are not verifiable <laughs> just as those within religion or not uh you you can't prove that god exists or the whether god doesn't exist um so uh and many times there are groups of of atheists that will gather together will will get involved in projects or various various activities maybe kinds of social projects to help in a community so in many respects uh atheism is a belief system People are, are very committed to it, very committed to it, as are people who are affiliated with the religion. So I think there are many, many parallels. Oh, wow. That's, that's a very interesting. So it seems like 
if I understood this correctly, it seems like generally whether you're for or against the idea of transcendence, it is an ideology that is related to it somehow, uh, if I'm catching this correctly here. Yes, it would be an ideology that's related in somehow to, um, you know, to, uh, to the transcendent, whether the transcendent exists or not. Right, absolutely. And so, again, another broad question. I guess uh, we're, we're kind of going for those controversial questions. Or I think this one you're, uh, you've kind of researched extensively. And is religion good for health? Well, that's a good question. And in fact, in 1985, I think it was 1985, or uh, might have been later, I wrote a book called is religion good for your health? Exactly that question. So before you guys were bored, that was a book that I was, and you know, struggling with that question. And it looks like that it is. Uh, it is religious involvement. Now, again, that's not true for everybody, but in general, based on epidemiological studies and some randomized controlled trials. Uh, Religious involvement is related to better mental health, less mental disorder, greater psychological well-being, better social health, greater marital stability, uh, less delinquency in crime. It's related to less alcohol, less drug use, less cigarette smoking, more exercise. The one thing it's not related to very much is weight. So religious people tend to be heavier than those who are not religious at all. So that's the one factor. But it goes beyond even, you know, mental, social, and behavioral health. It extends to physical health as well. Religious people tend to be just physically healthier. They tend to live longer. Um, they tend to be less disabled. They they develop cognitive dysfunction less rapidly as they age, less physical disability. And a lot of that has to do with, with just the fact that they live healthier lives because of their behaviors that are driven by their religious beliefs. So that makes me think as well, if we're considering that the behaviors that are driven by religious beliefs lead to like better outcomes in a variety of ways, are there particular aspects to religions that are more favor favorable to affect these behaviors? Yeah, you know, it seems as though religious attendance, well, it's actually the combination of both attending religious services and private religious activity. When both of those are up, both of those are high, um, People just tend to live healthier lives. They they be they they tend to behave themselves and and uh, follow these all of these do nots, which you know in my opinion the do nots are for our protection so that we can live happier and longer and healthier lives and happier lives. But in any case, um, that's uh, that's how I would I would see it. Wow, this, that's very interesting because you know I, I've I, you know I have kind of a global experience and I, I've been privileged with that, um, and I, and I've seen how culture and religion and health interact in different countries, um, and in some countries I'm finding that 
particularly uh, in Sudan, uh, I'm finding that sometimes religion can fill a vacuum uh, of, the, of mental health and particularly mental health structures when they don't exist for good or bad. Um, and it can create situations where there might be uh, less tolerance for mental health issues um, and less interest in advancing the research um, how do we how do we approach those situations? How do we address or how do we think about those things um, to be able to improve outcomes for patients in those types of areas? Yeah, you know, religion is a very powerful factor. That's something I think we can all agree on. Now, because it's such a powerful factor, people use religion for all sorts of non-religious purposes. They use it to control others. They use it to dominate people's lives and, 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 and direct them in ways that is self-serving for some of the leaders. So religion is, is, is used many times neurotically. But you know, I guess you know, one, one ought to focus on the positive aspects of religion. The, the, because it has potentially negative aspects as well as you've described. The positive aspects of it are generally devotion to God as the number one priority in a person's life, balanced with a love of neighbor. It seems as though that balance is crucial because if either one or the other gets out of balance, you have problems. If there's just total devotion to God and the hell with everybody else, you know, or I'm going to, you know, do stuff to other people because they believe differently than I do, you know, that's not good. And if you're just about trying to love your neighbor, <laughs> your neighbor is hard to love unless you have a plenty of motivation, sometimes religious motivation. So having the first the first love, which is the commitment and the surrender to God, that enables people to love their neighbors, whether their neighbors are being friendly or, you know, or scratching their backs or not, because they're, the motivation to love the neighbor is, is as part of the commandment, part of the devotion to God. And this is true for all major religious traditions. This is this advocating the love of neighbor. I, I actually, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because, and certainly this love of neighbor makes sense, but the uh, having like a God and, and particularly having like this one being seems like a major aspect of the, of Abrahamic religions more so in the West. I'm wondering if you find this true or similarities between this and religions in the East as well. It's a great question. And you know, it's one that I've actually looked into specifically because um, I, I've been interested in, in trying to understand um, God's love for all different people and trying to understand within the different religions and, and how, how people perceive God in the different religions and, and practice it. So let's look at Hinduism. So Hinduism, believes in a supreme God. So th there's no question about it. It's been called polyistic monotheism. So there are many manifestations of the one supreme God, but there is still only one supreme God within Hinduism. 
So there is, uh, you know, there's there are the three major, you know, gods. There's <laughs> almost like a trinity within Catholicism. There's the three major gods, but but they're all a manifestation of the supreme god. And then there are these what are called idols, but they are really kind of like, you know, within Catholicism, they've got all these these saints and these statues of everybody, you know, Mary and, and Joe, and, and, and it, in many respects, it's similar in Hinduism. And then in Buddhism, while it's, you know, it's supposed to be non-theistic, it ends up when you, when you go to these Buddhist countries, they're just simply calling God Buddha. You've got these huge, you go to Thailand, for example, there are these huge temples with enormous statues of the Buddha that people worship, they pray to. This is, you know, just, it's just like people, humans um, have needs. And so they pray to God to meet those needs. <laughs> and so God has to be seen as something that, that could respond to prayer. You know, so he's manifested or she's manifested in in various ways in different cultures. And and my opinion is that God reaches people based on how best to reach them. And that's different in different environments, in different cultural settings and different histories. That's all different, you know, very different from the West. So so I see it as um Kind of a, a basic human need, kind of a a um, a vacuum <laughs> that only God can fill, and uh, that's true no matter what, no matter what religion you're a member of. And uh, anyway, yeah, and I'm, I'm very curious about that. And you know, I, me and Jonathan were talking about this earlier, actually. Um, uh, what that need is and, and why it needs to be filled, just kind of a, you know, kind of referring to, you know, this uh, text by Freud, the future of an illusion and this uh, psychical defense of the forces of nature um, and that being manifested as religious belief. Um, and so he was not know, a fan of religion. Yeah, he was clearly not. And so you're a psychiatrist and you're a professor and you're, you're a scientist, you're a researcher. Um, and so what, what is that for you? And you mentioned that it is a need. And, you know, through, through your studies of different religions, what did you find to be the unifying theme? So let me let me just say a word about our friend Sigmund Freud. <laughs> brought it up. I'd love to hear this. So Dr. Freud has an interesting history. When you look into his life and his early childhood, he was in his in his younger year, he was very devoutly religious, but then he encountered some very negative experiences, in particular with Christians and his father, who was Jewish and who wore, you know, the the hat, the hamaka, or or you know what it, what it's called, and uh, you know people would knock the hat off his father, and he he had these very negative experiences, and then, you know, he carried that into the profession that he the, that he eventually you know really expanded it and founded by mainly based on his experience with patients not with with general healthy people in the population so he had these negative experiences from child bringing them, and then he sees these people who are 
like psychotic and neurotic and using religion in all sorts of defensive and negative and unhealthy mm -hmm. ways. And so he it's attributes true. it, these, these neurotic to the religion. Whereas he didn't do randomized, randomized surveys of large populations. Uh, he never did those. He didn't do any epidemiological studies looking at the religious beliefs of people and how they affect their health and well-being across the board outside of just those with mental illness that are seeking help so he that uh, that is why i think he developed this this negative view and then it kind of got reinforced you know over time like views do and so that ended up in uh you know in future of an illusion and moses and monotheism and all of the negative books where he trashed religion pretty good now, uh, what is the common element that religion seems to fulfill? Well, you know, if you, if you look at life from a purely scientific standpoint, where, where the only thing that's true is what you can observe and feel, life is pretty negative. That's a pretty negative life view of, of the scientific view. That means, if that's true, that means when people die, there is no rest in peace. There is total, eternal non-existence. Now, just think about that. Now, that's also true for if you lose a loved one, a parent or a spouse that you may have, you know, slept to for with next to for 50 years. Um, when that person dies, they're gone for all of eternity. So religion provides answers to that. And it, it says, no, that's not true. This is, uh, this is only, you know, part of it. And there's a lot more to come. And a lot of it is good. A lot of it is good. Hopefully it's good, <laughs> you know? And uh, there's no more pain. There's no more disability. You know, you're, you're with your loved ones you're with god that loves you you know i mean it's it's a, it's it's a wonderful worldview that that is positive that's optimistic plus it gives a sense of purpose and meaning in life you know what are we here for why are we here why are we here freud said it's the the reason the master motivation for everything we do is for Pleasure, pleasure is what is why we're here to experience pleasure. And you know, religion says something more that there is there is more, there is another reason why we're here. It's not just to experience pleasure. And yet, when you pursue this other reason for why we're here, we actually end up maximizing our pleasure rather than seeking pleasure like a carrot on a string that you keep searching for it and it gets further and further away. So in, in many respects, you know, even though the intention of religion is, seems to be against pleasure, it's actually maximizing it. And it's giving life a dimension that gives it meaning and purpose far beyond just the day-to-day pleasure-seeking activities, serving the God that created everything. What an amazing possibility that people might have. 
to serve and surrender to the God that knows everything, that created us, that is our maker, and that we will spend eternity with. Now, I tell you, that's a worldview that fosters mental health. Yeah, thank you. And and it, it, it speaks to the, to me, it sounds like it's a very much broader picture that religion can bring to the situation. Whereas Freud is focusing on very much the next hit of pleasure, like eating or drinking or sex or whatever it is. There's this stepping back and recognizing that the, and in a lot of ways, the things that we're seeking on a day-to-day basis can, can lead to a lot of hardship. Like, you know, if I eat too much, maybe it's pleasurable, but then I'm going to not feel so good later. That's certainly my experience, at least, you know, well, I'm, I'm wondering. Then, yeah, not not to jump in uh, Freud's defense here, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he also talks about avoiding pain and um, uh, part of avoiding pain is uh, avoiding the thought of death. Um, and, and so that might also be an important thing to take into consideration here uh, when we're thinking about um what religion brings to the table, as Dr. Koenig mentioned, this idea of this eternal non-existence uh, and the constant anxiety that might uh, be brought up in somebody to think about, whether it might be for themselves um, or others, to be thinking that at any moment, at any time, this life, as, as it stands in any form or shape, can cease and forever. And that is a very... Uh, anxiety-provoking uh, pr- uh, proposal. Um, and I think a lot of people find different ways to cope with it. Um, and some might even argue that that's the actual uh, drive for a lot of our actions, whether it be to immortalize ourselves, um, through whether, whether it may be through religious allegory of immortalization of an afterlife, or through heroism, uh, to become the hero to overcome something, to, to create a legacy for oneself so that we have names and buildings named after us and statues and people still echo our names for generations to come. Uh, and that may be a, a form of, of, of avoiding that pain. Uh, what do you think about that, Jonathan? Uh, you're asking, like, avoiding the pain of death and religion giving us peace of mind. Um, I think that there is, I, I think of it maybe, it, we may be on the same page, but I think of it almost the opposite way and that religion brings us closer to death and kind of brings it to a point where it's just not so scary, where we mm. can we can understand that, that this death is something that um, is okay, whether it's in like the Abrahamic religions where you have things like heaven uh, or like from what I'm familiar with, with Buddhism, there's this... Uh, there's the in, in Hinduism, there's rebirth and death, uh, as well as and uh, and recognizing that uh, it's just, it's just kind of this peace of mind, you know, mm-hmm. step, stepping forward to it. And yeah, I, I, I actually, go ahead. Yeah, John. yeah. Sorry, no, I was going to ask you essentially. I wonder what you think as well, Monty, with your background. Yeah, I, I think it does certainly bring uh, you know a different level of thought about death and it does teach you a little bit more about death um and it does really reduce your anxiety level about death but what i'm curious about is how we as mental health providers uh can use this information the research the knowledge the understanding of the psyche the understanding of these motivations whether they be dynamic or behavioral or cognitive 
what interventions? Uh, is this something that we should medicalize? Is this something that we should re leave to the to to the uh, people who deal with divinity and spirituality? I know that you've spent quite a bit of time investing uh, investigating this, Dr. Koenig. So I want to hear from you. Yeah. So you know, there is one thing that that we can all do, and that is we can take a spiritual history, take a spiritual history. That's really where everything begins in terms of trying to apply all of this research to clinical practice. So taking a spiritual history, finding out what are the religious or spiritual beliefs or, or non-religious beliefs of the person, what are their resources in that regard in terms of faith community, in terms of their belief system, in terms of their, you know, whether they depend on their religious scriptures for comfort, um, learning about that and, and learning about how a lot of times in our patients, these religious and spiritual beliefs are intertwined with their, their mental illness because they are often used to help to keep the used as glue to help keep the psyche together. And so that's why it's important to learn about them and to not just immediately try to dismiss them because it's, it's like taking the glue away, you know? Uh, and, and so even if they're using it neurotically, you know, you just want to better understand. You want to make them feel like you're on their side. That's the key that you're on their side. You wanna better understand them and understand their faith better or lack of faith better. You're curious about that. You wonder, you know, particularly if, you know, if they believe in a God that's hateful and vengeful and is hurting you out to, out to hurt them or punish them for their bad deeds and, and that kind of thing. You, you, you just want to, you want to understand that. And, and based on, that's why I think it's good to know a little bit about the religious beliefs of, of the five major religions. I've actually written a book on each of those for mental health professionals, the research and the clinical implications for Christianity within Protestantism and Catholicism, because they're different, and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and Judaism. So you know, uh, just ask them about, and these books are based on the original scriptures of these traditions. So, th so they're not based on just what, you know, the trend is in the particular religious organization or whatever. They're actually based on the core scriptures of these traditions, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism, the Dhammapada in Buddhism, the Torah, and the Talmud in, in Judaism, and of course the Bible within Christianity, and even within Catholicism, the, the uh, you know, there, there's these Catholic documents, I forget what they're called, a catechism, and so learning about all of that. Now, you don't need to become an expert in those things, but, you know, it's helpful, because really what we do, what we do in psychology and psychiatry is really kind of a progression it really started out with just religion. That's all people had for most of human history was their religious beliefs and their family. You know, what else was there? How did people cope with various stressors in life before, you know, before 200 years ago? 
yes, there were philosophers that helped, you know, some of the Greek philosophers had philosophies about life. But really, a lot of even that philosophy is all based on many of the religious traditions that preceded them. Yeah. No, so, I, I feel like... Um, oh, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just... It makes me think that I, I really resonate with you saying that there was just religion. That's how mental health was treated, so to speak, is that we had these religious beliefs and practices. And I, I wonder as... Uh, I don't really know this, but it seems like in, in my perception, religions uh, kind of it's going away in the West, at least in, in Europe and in the United States. And at the same time, we're seeing rises in mental illness. And I wonder like what you think, if, if there is some correlation there or if if they're related at all. Well, it's a good point. It is a good point. You know, um, recently the, the CDC announced that suicide rates had dramatically increased. In, in white women for, for some reason, that there had been between 1999 and 2010 or 14, there'd been this dramatic increase in suicide. And there's a, there's a professor at Harvard, he is uh, actually, he's, he has his mathematics degree from Oxford University, and he is an endowed professor in the School of Public Health there and is a brilliant statistician, in fact, has written the books on, on longitudinal data analysis that statisticians and causality that statisticians around the world use in their, as their primary texts. So he did a study looking at suicide rates among women in the women's health study. Actually, it was the nurses' health study, which is about 90,000 women uh, nurses that have been prospectively followed now for about 15 to 16 to 18 years now. And what he found was that the decline in religious attendance, first of all, he found that religious attendance, after you look at everything you could conceivably look at to explain it away, is really, it's about, it's about the hazard ratio, I think was, uh, it's about about 75 to 80% lower risk of completed suicide among women who are attending religious services at least wow. weekly or more. And what he found was that the reduction, the increase in suicide rate corresponds to the reduction in religious attendance. And he actually published this in the archives of general psychiatry. That's JAMA Psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So it does look like some of the changes that are occurring, and that is that is true. Our country is becoming less religious. Now, you know, I don't think, you know, some of the things are not a real dramatic reduction. There's still a high rate of belief in God, but still there is growing secularism that, that you, you cannot deny. And the big question here is what impact is that going to have on future health care costs mm -hmm. and future mental health? and future rates of addiction and alcoholism because religious involvement is if there's one area that it's related to it's related to less substance use in youth which is a time when when young people are getting their education and they're you know they're trying to go to college they're developing addictive disorders that's completely sidetracking all of that and it's leading to a life of 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 illness of addiction of enslavement to drugs and alcohol and religious involvement to help people 
protect them from developing that in youth. And as they get older, even if they do become addicted, that it seems to help them. I mean, the 12 steps, mm-hmm. you know, the 12 steps, eight of those 12 steps are directly related to, to religious belief, to surrender to God. And uh, this was even shown by, by a researcher at the Massachusetts General um, Hospital. They have a, a big center for addictions. The, the head of that center is, is Kelly. I forget his last name, but he did a Cochrane review and what he determined was that the most common, when, when you do a survey of 40, they did a survey of 40,000 people who had addictive disorders. They asked them, what of all the things that helped you, what helped the most? And about 10 or 15% said, well, you know, psychiatric care and psychiatric treatments, medication assisted, you know, treatments, et cetera. But it's like 60% are, are saying, that is 12 step programs that were the major way that this helped them to recover. This is just from people with addictions, 40,000 randomly selected people who had a lifetime history of an addictive disorder. So anyway, um, yes, I worry about the future, especially the future of you young guys. Because you're mm-hmm. going to have to pay for all these old people who are sick, <laughs> sicker because they're not religious. That's a good point. It's like a public health uh, thing at this point. Is religion could really serve to, like you're talking about, lower healthcare costs and improve health. That's um, what these guys. That's what these guys up at the School of Public Health at Harvard are saying. They have actually a center on spirituality, religion, and health up there, and they're just churning out these large data sets. Uh, publications in, in 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 the major medical journals, JAMA, JAMA Psychiatry, uh, Archives of Internal Medicine, JAMA Internal Medicine, uh, one, one after the other with these large samples, randomly selected samples and young people, actually. They've mm-hmm. got, they've analyzed the GUTS study, which is growing up today or something or other. They have like like 50,000 young people between the ages of 18 and, and 30 that they're mm-hmm. tracking over time. And they, they find these health benefits even at that age. In fact, lower rates of cancer, even among these young individuals um, who are more involved in, in religious activities. So it's, it's, really, it's really remarkable when you look at the actual data that's pouring out of, of one of the best you know, research institutes in the world. I, you know, that's real. It's too, so interesting. And I think, you know, something that I connected throughout this conversation and some of the questions that Jonathan has also asked is there seems to be two elements uh, to spirituality and religion that seem to serve a really positive, um, have a really positive outcome for patients. One of them is this positivity element. Um, and the second one is the social support um, and that seems to be the kind of the large uh, crux or the things that kind of stood the test of time to have better outcome for patients and society at large. And I'm just thinking to myself how we um, as mental health providers um, can contribute to those things. Um, and, you know, data is coming through about what's going on. This is a public health crisis. What are the calls to action? 
What should, should, we this, be doing? should we be doing like motivational <laughs> interviewing? You know, like we get people to stop smoking. We get people to start doing a religion, you know? <laughs> you, you know, I, I mean, it's a good thought, but it, you know, it just, that doesn't work. Uh, people have tried that, believe me. Really? People have tried that. You know, I mean, there's missionaries, that. I guess, you know? Yeah, I'm a visionary, yeah. So anyway, no, what, what, what you can do is you can, many, many patients we see already have religious beliefs of some kind or another. You know, especially here in Durham, North Carolina, you're going to be at least 90% are going to be, um, you know, religious in some way. So all you have to do is like support what's already there. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you ask them about in the spiritual history and you, you support it. And if they've drifted away from their fake congregation, you might try to find out, understand better why that's happened. You know, some people are very socially isolated, you know, that come to us. And it's because they had some negative interaction in their in their church. Somebody sat in their seat one time <laughs> or the minister offended them. And so they left. And now they're they're socially isolated. They don't have much of a community. And and so learning about that and saying, hey, you know, have you thought about going to some other religious congregation, you know, because it seems as though the research shows that they, this seems to help people because it expands their social network. And, you know, but you have to realize that social factors only explain about 25% of the effect that religion mm, has on mental and physical health. It's mm, about mm-hmm. 25. So there's 5% less that is, that is for other reasons, including the coping ability, the optimism, the lower depression, the less anxiety, and especially the better health behaviors. You know, it's it's so hard to live a healthy life. It is hard to not smoke, to not drink, to or to stop those behaviors or to stop addictive substances. It is so, so hard just based on your own human strengths because, you know, these, these addictions, they, they, there's no competition here with your human strength. They, they mm. have it. They've got you. They have got you hook, line, and sinker, you know? And so you need more, you need something more. And for, for many people, not all people, but for many people that they, they find that in their religious faith. Yeah. That's so very I, interesting. Uh, go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, no, no. It was just going to, it reminds me of, um, I read this book uh, a few months ago by um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a a Vietnamese uh, uh, Zen uh, monk who uh, is actually, he was nominated for a Nobel Nobel Prize and has just a bunch of just amazing books. And uh, one book he wrote was about not not comparing religions, so to speak, but Buddhism and the common elements between all religions. It reminds me a lot of this conversation uh, and about how there is this aspect of love that comes from God and that takes the, the many different forms. Um, and and it also makes me think that there is, uh, it, it reminds me of some of the practices that um, are in religion, at least in Buddhism, that are creeping its way into mental health treatment formally. Uh, like in the case of psychotherapy, for example, that's mindfulness-based and have Buddhist roots, like based in like the the four noble truths: this is suffering, this is how you end suffering, yada yada. And then doing meditative practices, which I think are analogous to prayer, and in a lot of different religions as well. And the the benefits you can see in, in functional MRIs as well that come from 
doing sustained practices over a long period of time. Um, so I guess there's really no question at the end of that. It's just me kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind no. of riffing. I wonder what you think, Monty, if you have any particular questions. No, I, I totally agree with that. And it brings me to this really curious point. You know, I keep up kind of, uh, kind of, um, trying to get to this point. And I guess I have asked in multiple ways, are we ending up with this evidence-based religion? Is this where we're, is this the, <laughs> uh, is this the ultimate outcome where we take the perfect parts of each religion, whether that may be the uh, less depression, less anxiety, the optimism and the social networks, you know, the, the same um, the same way that we have the 12 step program, which is, you know, taken out of um, Christian practice or Christian theory uh, to how to how can we or should we uh, be incorporating those things into um, you know, our, our, our practice as psychiatrists, mental health providers, psychologists, uh, policies and the government at large yeah my my thought about that is that if you've got you see again we're starting with the spiritual history here so mm -hmm. if you have a religious patient then there are religiously integrated forms of cognitive behavioral therapy mm. that we have actually developed and tested mm. here at duke so we have we have religiously integrated cbt for christians muslims Buddhists, Hindus, and Jews. And they're all available on our website. You can download them. Both the, these are structured uh, CBT interventions that uh, you can download for free, both, both therapist manuals and patient workbooks. And this has been tested in a randomized controlled trial and shown to have a pretty good effect size, you know, at least equivalent to secular CBT. Which, which included mindfulness, our secular arm included mindfulness and forgiveness and all sorts of different spiritual aspects. The only thing distinctive about our religiously integrated CBT was that it was religious. That was, that was the thing, the one distinction. But there were lots of spiritual aspects to the secular CBT. I think it actually uh, reduced the difference between the treatments. <laughs> but in any case, uh, so if you have somebody who's religious, you could consider utilizing their religious beliefs as part of their therapy. You could but what do if that. what if they're not religious? Is there if any way not, if they are not religious, you use secular techniques? Okay. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Okay. You know, How do you feel about, say, like their secular techniques, but maybe have a, a spiritual flair to it. Cause yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I see a lot of these mindfulness based interventions sure. is that, you know, we don't talk about, you know, the four noble truths and when we're doing CBT, uh, mindfulness based CBT, but like there they are still in the evidence. That's very, very true. You know, and the, and, and mindfulness meditation is mindfulness is the seventh step on the eightfold path, which is the core mm -hmm. of Buddhist teachings. And then meditation, more general meditation is the eightfold is the eighth step on the eightfold path. So yes, we can use a lot of these principles, for, uh, meaning and purpose. You ask people and you use a broad version of, of spirituality in this setting, because all people have a need for meaning and purpose and a sense of connection with others and, uh, you know, a, a need to learn methods by which they don't obsess over things are able to, kind of let things flow out of their minds and observe them in kind of a in a, a little bit more objective way which mindfulness of course the, the core of mindfulness it, it, that's part of it um 
And, and so absolutely, I think we can, we can do that. And I think it will help with the outcomes. And I think the research shows that it does. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Um, any conclusive remarks, Jonathan, as we kind of come to an end here? No, I, I just really appreciate your time, Dr. Kona. It makes me really uh, motivated to speak more about religion with my patients, to say the least. Uh, I, I have a patient right now, and without giving like personal information away, um, they're in the hospital and feel very guilty that they have sinned against God, and that's feeding into their depression. And I'll say that just on my own, exploring that with the patients uh, and talking about it, not necessarily even trying to do something about like trying to fix it see, really seems to, you know, I can see opening like more reactivity in the face. I can see the eyes opening up, you know, she would maybe lay back in bed the whole time and, but she would like start sitting up. Oh, there, there's an aspect to, I think what, you know, this, this rediscovering this religion or the religious practices that we can tap into really benefit our patients. Dr. Koenig. Any uh, last remarks as we kind of conclude? Well, here? I would I would completely agree with Jonathan, and it's really that's what convinced me that this was an important area of study back in 1985, 84, when I first started getting interested in it. Is is that I I was I was a nurse before I became a physician, and then I went into a family medicine residency. This is before psychiatry. And so as a nurse, I would always ask patients, how are you coping? And how are you coping with this heart attack, this stroke, this disability that you're facing? And they would look up at me and they would say, well, I'm praying, doctor. Or, you know, I know people in my faith community are praying for me. My minister came by and talked to me, says, I'm doing okay. And, you know, I just saw there was something different. And, you know, after a while... <laughs> After a while, I would make rounds on patients. It's in Valley Medicine in the, in the hospital. She say uh, instead of calling me Doctor Cody, they would call me the like the pastor. I because <laughs> I would ask them about how they were coping, just because you know I wasn't bringing up religion, but they were. It gave it an opportunity to share their beliefs with mm. me, and that made them feel better. True. So it had convinced me that there was something to this because those people did seem to do better. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that comment. And uh, what we learned today is uh, that religion is, is some sort of transcendence, that it serves a greater purpose. And that's why a lot of people uh, seek and find a need met in religion, that we should definitely focus on getting a religious and spiritual history um, on our patients um, and use that to be able to assess and also treat them in a better way. Uh, that before mental health, there was religions and they answered and provided and filled that gap of treatment. Um, and that it's only 25% um, of the social support that explains the religious benefits. There are, there are other things that are within embedded within religion that provide um, positive outcomes for patients. Um, and the use of integrated therapy, such as integrated CBT, can be a path for those who have religious beliefs uh, to be incorporated into their uh, psychotherapy practice. Thank you so much, Dr. Koenig. It's certainly been a pleasure. We appreciate your time, uh, and we look forward to speaking to you again, potentially in the future. Thank you, Montessor. And Jonathan, thank you both for 
this lively and enjoyable discussion. Bye-bye.